trails of troubles, rows of battles, fans of victory, we shall walk. Welcome to WEHC 90.7, and you're tuning in to She Walks with Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock, and we're just so glad to be here in the new year. This is 2023, and we are back, and we're excited about what lies ahead, but we also wanted to talk a little bit about what we've done over the year, and just to kind of review it a little bit, and then set the groundwork for where we're going to go in this next year. So Carly, how was your New Year's? It was wonderful. It was nice and relaxing, which is what I wanted, <laughs> and um, set some good goals for the new year, and just really excited to be back at it. Well, good. Mine was pretty low key. I was with my mom and we'd been there, it seems like forever. And it was about quarter of 12 and I was getting ready to pack up to go home. And she said, where are you going? <laughs> she said, aren't you going to watch the ball drop? And I thought, <laughs> oh, exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, oh yeah, sure. And so I just stayed and, and brought in the new year with her, you know, my 89 year old mom, but I had forgotten all about it. So that goes to tell you, I must be getting old myself, but Either way, it's really good to have a new opportunity and to look forward. There is a mythical uh, West African bird. Uh, it's called the Sankofa bird. And um, it it says, it's kind of like this. It says that the bird flies forward, looking back, plucking eggs out of its tail feather to give new life. And so I thought it might be a good thing, Carly, and you let me know, but to talk about where we've been mm -hmm. so that we can find those eggs, those nuggets and move forward. So you'll probably remember more than me. Uh, and since this is just now coming and we don't have a list or anything, you'll probably remember more than me. But, uh, you know, some of the things that we talked about and how we grounded it in intersectional feminism. Yeah, um, I definitely think that's a great idea to look back at everything that we've kind of talked about this year and where we're sort of going this year. We talked with a lot of amazing women this year. We had a lot of really great guests on, especially during Women's History Month. We talked a lot about leadership, which I think was kind of where we found ourselves um, a little niche, I think, um, because we, you know, we were just sort of previously talking about general feminist stuff. Um, and then we would react to some um, current events and things like that. But then Women's History Month, we met with a lot of women and talked to them about their experiences in the workplace, but also their experience with leadership or as leaders. Um, and we just sort of found a really rich vein there and sort of kept following that, which was great. And I think we explored a lot of really great things. And we were looking at it through that intersectional feminist lens. And that sort of led us into the current conversations we've been having about having about change models, which I think mm -hmm. is also great. Well, I guess maybe it might be good for us uh, to kind of talk a little bit about that intersectional feminist perspective. And 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 it, I mean, we can do the simple version. We don't have to do a big textbook definition or anything. But most people attribute intersectionality, except me. I I, I say that intersectionality happened before Kimberly Crenshaw, before. Uh, Patricia Hill Collins, before Selma get all of those. I, I say that it happened with Sojourner Truth. And of course, that's just my research. And here we are on the show called She Walks, which is about uh, Sojourner Truth. But from an intersectional feminist lens perspective, what we really are talking about, we're talking about how race, class, gender, and other challenges, life challenges, life experiences impact women. And, and it impacts them in a different way 
And, and those are overlapping systems, if you will, that marginalize and disenfranchise women. And so what we wanted to do, I believe, or what we've been trying to do is to bring that to the forefront and kind of say, hey, if you look at it through this lens, you can see something different. Absolutely. One of the ways that intersectionality is sometimes explained is that it's an analytical framework for understanding how aspects of a person's social and political identities combine to create different modes of discrimination or privilege. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was really important to you and me to talk about feminism and be very intentional to say that we are intersectional feminists, right? For me, a couple of reasons. One, um, there's a quote that says, you know, if your feminism is not intersectional, it's not feminism, right? Which I agree with 100%. Yeah. And we also wanted to look at, you know, those very various intersecting identities, right? So what does it mean to be a disabled woman? What does it mean to be a Black woman? What does it mean to be a queer woman or a trans woman, right? And all those different identities and how those intersect and those various layers, right? Because you might be a disabled queer woman, right? So you might be a disabled queer brown or black woman. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, all those layers and how those deeply impact both your lived experience, but also the structures around us, right? And how are the structures around us contributing to that intersectional identity um, and impeding people to live their full lives, right? I think we've explored a lot of that when we've talked about kind of the workplace and we've talked about a little bit of like political frameworks and things like that. So looking at those through that lens, I think has been really helpful. Yeah, one one way that I think that we've done that is, you know, intersexual feminism, it centers the voices of experiencing, this is one person who says it this way, of experiencing overlapping concurrent forms of oppression in order to understand the depths of inequalities and the relationships among them in any given context. And I think that's what we've done. We've looked at these overlapping systems of oppression and how they affect women and you know people who identify as women more so than how they do other people and in the workplace which is mm -hmm. kind of you know our milieu that's our environment and so we've talked a whole lot uh about that and and I think that one of the things that that has driven me to get to this place or this space of leadership is our leadership models are so patriarchal. Our leadership models are so hierarchical. Our leadership models are, are so driven by maleness that we don't really have an opportunity to see these types of oppressions that are going on day to day. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. was really critical for me. Yeah. And, you know, the way that we think about leadership is very patriarchal. And so, you know, we explored that a lot during Women's History Month and then afterwards when we were kind of following some of those threads. And we'd recently, um, in the past couple of months, been talking about change, uh, disruptive change, but then also change models, both of those ideas. And I think we found some really good information and we really dissected some things and talked about how women leaders tend to like really kind of embrace that disruptive change for the most part. And why is that? And that was a really cool thing to explore. And then looking at these change models and looking at them through that intersectional feminist lens, I think has been really interesting to explore as well. Yeah, I think it has as well. And I think it's been important for us to, you know, look at the historical aspects of this intersectional framework 
look at how we got here. I mean, you know, there's a, a rhythm and blues singer, Deborah Cox, and part of one of her songs is said, how did I get here? Nobody's supposed to be here. And truthfully, we should be so far past this uh, marginalization, this discriminatory process, and how we uh, how we see women in the workplace in particular, when we look at it in that context. And so, you know, these inequalities, we talked about, we've talked about poverty, we've talked about money and salaries for women and the discrepancies and how men ask for a salary and women don't even open their mouths thinking that what they're going to do is going to get them promoted or to get them more money when in, when in actual fact, all they're going to get to do is to keep doing what they're doing and more of it. Mm -hmm. So we talked about some of those things and, and the caste system and we talked about race and the importance of anti-racism and and just sexism and just overall the denying of people's rights and access to the perceived societal resources. And so I think that we're on to something. I, I don't know what our listening audience thinks, but we think we're on to something, Carly, because we 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 know how important it is for uh for equity and for equality and for us to be inclusive in the process. And the only way I believe that we get there is that we have to dismantle some of these systems and intersectional feminism gives us a lens, a way to go about doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when we look at these, um, these change models that we've been exploring, some of them, they have elements in them that are, are good and useful. Um, some of them have like step-by-step -step guides of, you know, this is what you do first, second, third, you know, and, and that can be helpful, mm -hmm. um, but they are also most of them written by men. And a lot of them are that same hierarchical structure of the leader makes the choice to change something. And then, then the model kind of falls into place. And we have been, um, you know, kind of dissecting those models and seeing if there's areas in there for, less of that patriarchal hierarchical change and more so the people have decided this needs to change. And so how do we go about using that model for that purpose? Yeah, I think, it, and and I think Carly, if we continue, we might come up with something that's kind of original to us. You know, I think that, that we too can be considered theorists, even though we're not, you know, technically named theorists at this point, but I do believe that anytime anyone challenges, you know, uh, discrimination, oppression, you somehow become an armchair theorist in the process. And even though we're using intersectional feminist lens to do that, I think we're coming up with some pretty much some aha moments. You know, we're we're starting to look at uh, especially this women in disruptive leadership. One of our sessions we had was all about women who were disrupting their field. Some of it was technology. Some of it was diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging. Uh, I can't remember some of those other things, but there are some women who are saying, we're going to interrupt the status quo. Uh, one woman even said, we're going to create a new quote. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and, you know, one thing that we always say on our show is that, you know, you and I are not experts in a lot of what we talk about. We are learning alongside the audience. We are talking about a lot of ideas and things to explore and to educate ourselves on, but we're also very open to learning new things and embracing new ideas. So, you know, we're very clear about about that. And I think as we go through these um, change models, which is what we're kind of exploring at the moment, you know, it allows us to, like you said, come up with our own theories and our own ideas about what could work better or how we can maybe adjust these change models to better fit 
a less patriarchal mode of change. Yeah, and and I think that's excellent, Carly, because I, I really do believe in this whole, from this whole intersectional feminist lens, when we look at how oppression works and how it doesn't work for some people, <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we I, I didn't want people to think that I was saying that oppression was positive, but how, how oppression operates within the system and who's dishing it out, who's delving it out. And the, if the same people continue to remain in power and if the same thing keeps continuing to happen and we don't get to experience any change, even if it's incremental change, then we're going to be right where we are and we're never going to be anywhere different. And we talked a little bit about it on our campus. We we serve at a, at a, a predominantly white institution uh, here at Emory and Henry. Uh, we're changing. We're doing some new things and we've gotten uh, new students who are students of color and all of that. But you know, we're able to talk out of our own lived experience as well as hopefully invite other people to do that also. Because if you don't talk from your own location, uh, then you're you're talking kind of academic hegemony. You know, you're just talking about like talking heads. And so I think we've done a pretty good job of grounding it in Southwest Virginia, Emory and Henry, uh, predominantly white institutions, all of those kinds of things. I think we've done a good job in, in grounding what that intersectional feminist lens needs to look like in in this environment, in this space. Yeah, I think we have um, a lot of the things that we talked about in the beginning when we were kind of laying the, the foundation for what the show was going to be was a lot about theory and frameworks and, you know, analytical tools, which are all very, very important. But then we need to explore what that looks like in lived experience and in reality, right? So right. we can talk about what intersectional feminism is, but what does that look like in actuality and practicality, right? Um, and so grounding that back into lived experience and also just like practically how do you, you know, it's fine to talk about being anti-racist, but action steps, how do I be an anti-racist, right? Um, and so I think that's really important that we talk about that and, and add that in in the upcoming years, continue to talk about that. Yeah. And how do I, how am I an anti-racist feminist? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because when we start trying to address the multiple facets of discrimination, it's important that that we do that. And even, um, you know, Angela Davis and some people are talking about abolitionist feminists. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to put these words together to describe the action that is being taken by some people to dismantle these systems because they are long and they are historic. They have been around forever and they seem normative to most people. Right, absolutely. And I think that's why exploring disruptive change was so powerful for us because it is about challenging the system. Well, we've always done it this way. Okay, but why? Why do we do it that way? Is that the best way to do it? And if it's not, how can we change that? And just because we've always done something that way doesn't mean that it's helpful or good. Right. Um, and I think that was really powerful for us to kind of explore that and figure out, you know, we can disrupt and make good change, right? We can do that. It just takes some very broad, open-minded thinking. <laughs> yeah. And I think the last time, Carly, what was the model that we used that we're using here at Emory and Henry in our, that's the one you're the most versed in. What was the name of that model? I can't even think of it right now. It's the Nosters model. Nosters, Nosters, Nosters model for change. And so we talked a, a, a little bit about that in our, in our last episode. And so we're, we're kind of moving into another change model, but, um, 
I, I think that no matter what we talk about and no matter what we come up with, it's kind of like what Carly said earlier. We've got to know for the most part, these management models are white males talking about systems that they may not be fully aware of. I'm not, I'm not saying that none of that is good, but what I'm saying is, excuse me, the perspective that it comes from has so many assumptions built into it. Sure. And, and the, the primary thing that they leave out is the power situation, the whole power piece, because you're talking about systems from a powerful perspective, but the people that are ingrained in the systems are often powerless. So they don't work the same way. You know, if you tell me to create a sense of urgency, like that's in one of the things in the Cotter model that we're going to look at. If you tell me to create a sense of urgency, uh, if I'm powerful, privileged person, I can create that sense by just telling my subordinates what they have to do. But if I'm one of those people that's in uh, lower in the model or the totem pole or the hierarchical order, I can't do that same thing. So to just say, oh, create a sense of urgency. Well, that's got some, some layers built into that. Like who can create the sense of urgency? Who is the urgency for? You know, so those are the kinds of things as we talk more about these change models that it's important for us to weave in the intersectional feminist lens because it's not the same. You're absolutely right. And you know, one of the change models we looked at talked a lot about resources. And again, the people who have access to the resources, most of the time resources ends up being money, right? Money and labor. The people that have access to that are the people that are at the top or the in the leadership roles, right? So it's very difficult for people who are in that maybe middle management or even you know lower down on the total pole than that to access the resources they need to make change, right? So you're exactly right. I mean, a lot of these models assume a level of power within an organization that may or may not be there. Um, and then of course, those organizations end up working within a larger structure, right? So that structure has its own rules and regulations that are in place. So these change models are really great jumping off points for deeper discussion. And there are some good things in these models. It's not to yeah. say that they're not, but there does there are some assumptions there and there are some things that just may not quite work in the actuality of implementing those models. Yeah. And and I, I hope that our audience, I hope that you all have, have been able to come along on this fantastic voyage with Carly and myself regarding why the whole intersectional piece is so important. If we don't get that, everything else will not matter nearly as much because then we're just building in to the structures that exist or we're saying that they exist sui generis they're just there and we don't know how they got there and their systems and they're they've always been there well I, I don't really believe that. I believe they have origins and I believe they have origins that we can trace back and we can trace them through a lot of the isms. We can trace them through classism. We can trace them through racism. We can trace them through, through sexism. I don't think they exist. They just popped up. I think our world dominant systems created them. And so I think it's important for us to, to talk about how different people are affected differently by by these systems that are that are there. Yeah, one of the things that um, has sort of come into a lot of the discussions that are happening online and in the political sphere and in the you know sociolo sociology sphere are about systems, right? Systemic racism, mm -hmm. systemic sexism, those sorts of things. Because I think when we talk about those ideas, we 
people sort of get bogged down in the people, right? Well, I am not a racist or a sexist. And that may or may not be true, but the system that we're operating within is, right? So trying to reconcile those two things and understanding that, you know, let's say that there's a system, right? It was built a long time ago through racism and sexism. The person that is now within working within that system may not align with those values, but that system was created by people who did. So now we have to look at the system and say, does this system still work? And how can we make it better? Because very often it doesn't. And our systems also tend to be extremely ableist, which um, Mm -hmm. we learned a lot about through COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, again, it's like, we need to challenge those those things because we ourselves may not think of ourselves as being ableist, but we're working within a system that is. So how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah. And I, I, when you said that, it just made me think of my mom's in a chair and we went to a ball game there in Kingsport not too long ago. My nephew's 11 years old. We went to a ball game and she had to use the restroom. And so we go to the restroom and the handicap quote unquote stall is not working. And here you are, you know, you're an hour away from home and you need to go to the restroom and you can't get there. So when I went and I told the people, they were like, yeah, it's been broken for a long time. It just keeps getting broken. And so, you know, what we ended up having to do was to stop the press, go into the male quote unquote bathroom, use that bathroom. My mother is 90 years old almost. She's totally embarrassed, you know, just to have to go into what was labeled as a men's bathroom. She uses it. And when we come out, here are all these little boys who've been having to go to the bathroom, but had to wait the seven to 10 minutes that it took us to get her out of the chair on the blah, 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 and out there. And so, and I, I, when I called about it, the owners called me back and they said, well, we, we accommodated you. And so I don't know why you called because we accommodated you. I said, that was not accommodation. That was an improvision. It was not an accommodation. An accommodation would have been that you would have fit, you would have fixed the bathrooms when they mess up and you would have made it a priority. But you think people who come to a sports arena are going to be able-bodied. Mm-hmm. It's what you think. And so you didn't see it as necessary to make that work, but yet you can charge everybody $15 to come into this facility, but right. you cannot provide. And I know that I got off a little bit, but I'm just saying the systems, she was just, and she had money. They had money. They were the owners of it, but she was telling me how it wasn't so bad that my mom was able to go use the men's bathroom. And that was an accommodation. Yeah. Right, exactly. And I think that story also illustrates, you know, this broader idea of assumptions that we make about people who operate within systems, right? Um, You know, like you said, assuming that everyone who goes to a sporting event is going to be able-bodied, and that is not true, and that's an assumption that a lot of people make. So, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right, and I think exploring some of those assumptions that our systems make about individuals is really important because it starts to show you how the system works and how, you know, ableist, sexist, racist the system is, right? Yeah. And and I I think I read this one article, I forget who it was. It was a Vietnamese woman. And um, I read it because she was young and she was saying how intersectional feminism is new to wherever her location was. I can't remember all about it, but she gave some strategies and some ways to uh, how you can become an intersectional feminist. And I thought we might talk a little bit about some of those. Like the first one was, was like sharing your power. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do we, 
how do we invite people to share power, Carly? I mean, what are what are some ways that you think that we might could continue to do it or that we have done it or that it could be done? I mean, that's an excellent topic for us to explore because that, that could be many, many episodes on its own. But I think part of the conversation that we've been having about using your privilege, you know, when you and I do DEI trainings in the past, you know, we would talk about using your privilege for good, right? Understanding your privilege and then using it. And I think we saw some of that happen with the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, white allies stepping up to, to use their power you know, in those situations. And I think that's part of it, using their privilege in those situations. I think that's part of it. And then I think, you know, getting women leaders on board, especially as we talk about the change models and disruptive change is, you know, finding those women leaders who are intersectional feminists and having them, you know, really take up the mantle because they do have the power to implement change in their systems, right? Because they're in those leadership positions. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that the writer talked about in the article. She talked about using your platform, whatever it is, to support uh, those with less privilege. And uh, I think sometimes it, it becomes, if you, if, if, you, if you say that privilege is, is assumed, and we know that it is, then you have to acquiesce and allow the people who have that to bring somebody else along, you know, to, as you said, to become allies. Like, you know, if we have allies who identify as males, who have that assumed privilege to bring women, people who identify as women along. Right. Then that that kind of kind of works. Um, the other thing I think she said was listen to diverse groups and hear what they have to say. You know, there's nothing worse than to try to uh, address a problem or a challenge or a system and not hear from the people who it who it involves the most. And that happens all the time you know, in from a leadership perspective, we never hear the voices of those that need to be heard. Right, which is that whole inclusion piece, right? Um, and having diverse voices at the table and not just saying, oh, look at all of our representation, right? But then actually listening to what they have to say, their lived experiences, what they're telling you about your system, you know, because if you have a level of privilege, you're not going to see certain things because it's not your lived experience. And so mm -hmm. listening to the lived experiences of others is extremely important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things I think she said was uh, to uh, take criticism on board. She, she was talking about how it could be hard to hear criticisms, but we've got to listen. And if we don't do that, if we don't take into account people's lived experiences, then there won't be any change. Mm-hmm. I know more how I have felt about what has happened to me than somebody who's not me. <laughs> of course, right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think there can be this feeling of defensiveness that comes up when, when criticism is laid at the feet of someone or a system that you happen to be a part of, right? And I think it's really important to sit with that right? And not just fly off the handle or say, well, I don't do that, or I don't think that that's true, or whatever the case may be, and really listen to what is being said. Because again, that person has a level of lived experience that you don't have. So listening to their lived experiences is extremely important. Yeah. And I think the final two things she said, and I know we're running out of time, but she said, create strength in numbers. You know, you got to create this bigger social justice community. And yeah. I think that's really what we're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that goes back to that intersectional piece, right? Because the more that we think intersectionally, the more we understand that 
our social justice movements have to be intersectional as well. So we have to be thinking about how we can find allies in other communities also fighting for social justice, right? And how we can all work together to support each other. So that's really, really important. Yeah. And then the last thing she said, she said, share ideas and resources. And I think that's what we believe is happening here on She Walks. That's why we hope you tune in every week to hear about some resources or some ideas and uh, to help to help us move the cause, to help her to keep walking, help, help, help her, she to keep walking. I think that's important. <laughs> for us to do it. So we hope that the things that we've done this past year and the things that we're going to do in the year coming will be beneficial. And if there's anything that you'd like to talk about as our listeners, or you'd like us to take on, or you'd like to be a guest on our show, please don't hesitate to let us know. Yes, I absolutely second that. And, you know, in that same vein, I think one thing we can do more of this year is sharing local resources, practical resources for our listeners and the broader community. Very, very important work. We're so happy that you all have joined us and that you've been with us for the past year and hopefully will stay with us again this year. We are working on some really cool things to bring you all and some great discussions to have. So we appreciate all of you, your time, your, your ears, your listening ears, and we will see you all again next week. Take care. And Carly, we are grateful for WEHC. <laughs> we are very grateful for WEHC as well. Listen to all of their programming. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Pass on the victory we share.